We're in Jonah chapter 3, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching one day, picking up in verse 17. On one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Father, we come face to face with the miraculous almost every day and we miss it. I beg and pray that as we get into the extraordinary work you did in Nineveh today, that our eyes would be opened to the very extraordinary work you have done in our own lives and you call us to do. Guard our hearts and minds, guard my lips in the preaching of your word, we beg in Jesus' name. Amen. We're awed, not odd, we are awed by the miraculous. This story that I showed you, uh, I don't want to, great title, the story of Jonah ends when he is called the second time to go to Nineveh. You don't hear anything about Nineveh. What do you hear about? You hear about the big fish. Not that it's a bad story, but that's where it ends. By and large, as you read through Jonah, once you get through the big fish, yeah, it's like a letdown. And excitement in the book seems to wane. Chapters 1 and 2 have all the action, the ooh and the ah factor. And the, those things are gone, seemingly, in chapters 3 and 4. Jesus tells the paralytic here, your sins are forgiven and the only ones who bat an eyelash are a couple of eavesdropping scribes and Pharisees. And they're aghast that he would have the audacity. You have to wonder about everybody else. They're probably just sitting there wondering, who's going to fix the roof? Your sins are forgiven? Okay, yeah, whatever. And they don't fathom what was done. So you've got three responses, really. You've got the response of the Pharisees. You've got the, the inertia, I'll call it, of the crowd. 
and you have the paralytic who is ultimately healed. And God enthroned in the heaven is well pleased with his son's declaration because Jesus had pivoted that man's eternity with four words. Your sins are forgiven. Think about this. With those words, that man could have breathed his last, never walked again, and then enjoyed an ecstatic eternity prancing through the Alps like Julie Andrews. Eternal life. And it troubled the scribes and the Pharisees and bored the masses. Or if Christ had merely healed his legs right at the outset, but offered no forgiveness, the man would have enjoyed another 40 or 50 years walking around and spent eternity burning in hell. But once the paralytic walked, whoa, now amazement grabs hold of everybody. They're like, we've never seen anything like this. You missed it. You missed the great and extraordinary thing that Christ did. And today, the most breathtaking aspect of the book of Jonah takes place. And the narrative is in such a just the facts language that we can whip right through it and go, yep, okay. On to Jonah, Jonah Amos, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. So as we turn our attention to Nineveh today, understand that the Ninevites had no idea of this guy's backstory when he walks into town. Just off a three-day respite in the belly of a fish, you have to understand that it took Jonah some weeks to go from the coast to northern, today, Iraq, Mosul, Nineveh. It wasn't right there on the coast. It didn't just start happening. He had to motor himself by his legs to get up there. In Nineveh, we are going to witness a miraculous repentance unseen in all of history and in all of scripture. At last, in chapter three, let's pick up in the opening verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So we finally have obedience from this guy. Okay. And notice in his message, there's no snark or bitterness on the part of the Lord. Okay. Would you please finally, after all of this, would you go to Nineveh? He doesn't say that. He doesn't go, okay, remember the last time I told you to do this and you just, you balked and not only did you balk, but you went to, he didn't do that. Jesus or the Lord just gave him the command again. There's no, nothing ulterior in God's comment. No, eh, some of us have a real gift with words and we can mm, kind of just twist it a little bit to make our point known. And God in his goodness doesn't do this. Oh, that we would be as gracious as God when offering second chances to those around this. But brothers and sisters know this, that if you have breath in your lungs today, which you do, God is offering you a second chance or a third chance 
or a fourth chance to follow after him, to do the things he has called you to do. Consider the efforts to which God has gone to get Jonah, who didn't want to go, to at last finally be willing to go to this city to preach the word. Okay, now, it, it wasn't an effort on God's part. God doesn't sweat, God doesn't toil, but in his timing, in his purpose and plan, he still used a guy who didn't want to go. We talked about this the first, in the first message on Jonah, that it would have been easier to call somebody else in Nineveh. There's a whole lot of other ways that would have been easier than what Jonah went through to get him there. But God is not rushed. His timetable is his own, and it's unfolding at precisely the cadence and tempo that he desires. Oh, that we would know such peace. And God has purpose. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we see that God is glorified in his forbearance and in his patience because others might come to know the God that he is. Romans 2 verse 4 reads, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His forbearance, his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Time is opportunity. And God showed it to Jonah. And God shows it to us. So we know, we can be certain that if we have breath in our lungs, that God is giving us opportunity, just as with Jonah. Know this also, though, that there's an end to God's forbearance. Sodom and Gomorrah saw the end of God's forbearance. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament saw an end to God's forbearance. Egypt, after seeing ten plagues, saw an end to God's forbearance. Canaan, in the destruction of the Canaanite people from Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, there was an end of God's forbearance. Even Israel, as we preached through the kings over the last year and a half, we see an end to God's forbearance. God continually calls his people back. As we have breath, we have opportunity to turn, repent, and turn back to him. And let us not presume on God's forbearance. Let us not take it for granted. Let's praise him for his grace and forbearance, but let us use the time he has given us, not to increase in the depths of our depravity, but to strive after the holiness that the author of Hebrews states, none will see God, without which none will see God. So yes, he is absolutely the God of second chances. But here, notice that there's a difference, a slight difference in God's command to Jonah. In Jonah, in Jonah chapter 1, first verse, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The second time God calls Jonah, chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, 
the message that I tell you. And we don't hear what it is. What is it? When are you going to give it to me? He didn't tell him when. He didn't tell him when or what. He just told him to go and you will preach the message that I will give to you. Now, as we get into this, as we get into chapter four, you might read chapter four, you might read chapter one into chapter three and think, well, this message that we're going to read is really blunt. You know, there's like no compassion in it. And you don't read the inflection because it's just the facts. Was he angry as he preached this? Was he, was he timid as a mouse? You don't know. You just have the message. So we're not gonna we're not gonna presume that Jonah had any attitude while he's in chapter three because we don't read it within the text. But Jonah goes, he seems to obey with no apparent delay, according to the word of the Lord in verse three. Sometimes we need a fish to motivate us to go. I wish we didn't, but God will use what he uses to get us to where he wants us to be. So Jonah makes the most of his second chance. And when God says go, he does. And we see the first of two amazing miracles that take place within Nineveh. And the first miracle is just a radical repentance. Now, before we get into the text, let's talk a little bit about what repentance is. And I'm going to flip over to Ezekiel. the last of the major prophets. After you hit the Psalms a little bit to the right, you'll hit Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 30. Just a beautiful picture of what repentance is. In verse 30 to 32, God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Now, where God says in verse 30, repent and turn, in the Hebrew, it's actually turn and turn. Turn and turn. God wants his fallen creatures to turn to him and to turn away from their sin. To recognize that what we have here is death. To turn away from our sin and to turn to the living God. We don't turn just away from our sin to try, okay, I'm going to try another track, another lifestyle. Um, I'm going to work out more. I'm going to eat better. I'm, I'm going to think better thoughts. I'm going to watch less TV. No, we're turning from our sin and from things that are frivolous to the living God. 
He says also to cast away your transgressions. It's not merely turning, but it's getting rid of them. A great example of that is in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus with the preaching of Paul and the other disciples that were there. The people in Ephesus were convicted. The magicians in the city were convicted and they burned their books. They burned their magic books. It says a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a drachma, a day's wage. That's 160 years wages. They burned their books. They, they cast away all of their transgressions. God wants all of you. Now, Ezekiel says that God wants you to make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why? Because the old ones are a mess. The old ones are tainted. The old ones are broken. But we know I can't change my heart. I can't change my spirit. Later on in Ezekiel, God will say, I will give you a new heart and I will pour my spirit into you by which you will delight to obey my commandments. As I read in Ephesians chapter two, the person who does not know Christ is dead in their sin. Inert. You can't do anything. You're dead. Dead men can do nothing. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians, but God, God who is rich in grace, God who is rich in kindness, through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us that we now have ears to hear. God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so therefore, because of God's work alone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So this idea of repentance is a turning from and a turning to. And it is the work of the living God that does that. And so... With that in mind, we turn really back to Jonah and the shocking events that take place in verses 4 through 9. I'll read 4, four, to four and 5 here first. Jonah began to go into the city, and going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days of Nineveh shall be overthrown. You kind of look, and he goes, Is there anything else? No, that's it. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So what you have here initially is a summary of what happens in Nineveh. And in the verses that follow, you have a breakdown of what is actually happening. So the first thing you see as Jonah goes into the town is a, uh, a rather unimaginative apologetic message. An unimaginative evangelistic message. I don't know how that would fly in this book. I took a course called Evangelism Explosion. 
to help me be able to better share my faith. And this was not one of the messages that they gave. This, these were not the steps that you're supposed to take to share your faith. And so you might actually read it and call it rather uninspired, but it can't be uninspired because God himself gave Jonah the message. So it is absolutely inspired. What's he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so you have to wonder, um, if you're a Ninevite, by what? By whom? And who, by the way, fish guy, are you? So you look at that message and you go, how does anybody get saved from that? And say, this is so important. It is not you, but God who saves souls. You are just the mouthpiece with the message he has given you. God calls us to be obedient to his message and the outcome is his. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Always being prepared. Gentleness, respect, the reason for the hope that is in you. You're just being a witness. Why are you a Christian? Come on, really? Give a reason for the hope that is in you. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 points to a similar notion. Paul tells the church at Colossae, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each one is different. Each situation is different. Do you care about the person across from you? Saint, be faithful. God told Jonah to go and proclaim the message, and he calls us to go and proclaim a message. Look and pray for opportunities. And know this, your message is divisive and judgmental. You are stating plainly by what you believe and what you have become convinced of that they are wrong. You may not have said that, but that is the implication. You are declaring them to be in their sin and condemned. You are declaring that if nothing changes, they will spend eternity in hell with Adolf Hitler and serial killers whom they think they have nothing in common with. And because of this, you will be hated because they hated him, the Lord Jesus Christ, first. So what did God do with this odd message? He saved souls. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. They, they believed. They believed it. 
But they didn't just believe and go, oh, well, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They repented. They fasted. They stopped eating. They put on sackcloth from the top of the city to the bottom. And we see the specifics fleshed out in verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Boy, that smells like Ezekiel. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word comes to the king. The king repents. The evidence of repentance. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth, you know, like potato sacks. It's rough. It doesn't feel good. He takes off his cushy, you know, ermine robe of animal fur or royal silks and puts on sackcloth. And he doesn't sit on his throne. He sits in ashes. Okay, ashes are gritty. They are not comfortable. Job sat in ashes when he mourned. Not only that, he calls, the king calls for national repentance across the city. Man, beast, fast, sackcloth, call on God mightily and repent. Man, I mean, the repentance of Nineveh is a repentance of totality. And so going back to repentance, do we repent with such totality? You know, okay, I'm sinning a little bit and, you know, it bothers me. Is that my attitude? Well, okay, maybe I'm really, I really get broken when I'm caught in the effects of my sin and sin comes crashing down all around me. Okay, that's when I really repent. Well, this hadn't happened yet. They are simply called to look at their sin and to repent. May God give us eyes to see the depths and the darkness and the effects of our sin as he sees them. Oh God, that I would see my sin as you see my sin, that I would hate my sin with the holy hatred with which God hates my sin. To know that my sin is an affront to his holiness. To know that my sin stains the image of God with which he has created me. That my sin shows a disregard for the good ways that he would have me to go. In obedience, following after him. I don't want it. Oh, God have mercy and the king understands, the king fathoms, this is God's doing. He calls to repent to God. 
And he recognized that God is sovereign in this and the affairs of men. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah recognized God's hand in the storm. The sailors recognized God's hand in the storm as well. And it's amazing that modern man today does not see God's sovereignty in the world around them. It is all a mechanistic world. This is a new thing. This is like only in the last hundred years. If you go back to our founding fathers, even Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, the deist whose theology was questionable at best, during the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he stated, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground after hitting our window without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? He wasn't an evangelistic Christian, but he saw that this is not just random happenstance around us, that God is working in the affairs of men. And so the king, in the face of destruction, chooses... Do I continue in my folly or do I repent? And this king would rather die trying, giving repentance a try. Perhaps maybe he will relent, then not try at all. You know, think about this. The faith of those who brought the paralytic. Dude, he's crippled. Well, here's this guy who's a healer. Is he going to heal us? Or is he going to heal him? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But at least let's try. And as we read this, the Pharisee might stand up and go, well, what about church and state? You know, what about the king? Okay, it's fine for the king to repent, but how about the people just let them do their own thing. So just a brief word about church and state separation. That is like new within the history of humanity. Generally speaking, the king and even the church in England right now, the king and the queen, king or the queen, is the head of the church in England. This whole idea of church and state separation is really kind of a new thing in the last hundred years and has really gained kind of a secular traction. But whatever the king did, the people followed in days of old. You sacrificed to who the king sacrificed to. Even in our country, our founders did not bar religion from the public square or even from the president. The whole idea of the amendments to the Constitution was to ensure that Congress would make no laws concerning the establishment of a religion so that people could worship as they saw fit. But it did not restrict the president from leading his people in worship. 
And we see this. Abraham Lincoln in 1863, in the heat and the fury of the Civil War, called for the nation to turn to God and repent of its sins. John Adams called for a national day of prayer and fasting in 1798 during his presidency. He noted, well, this is actually what he wrote. He sounds like a preacher. As the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend on the protection and the blessing of Almighty God, and the national acknowledgement of this truth is not only an indispensable duty which the people owe him, but a duty whose natural influence is favorable to the promotion of that morality and piety without which social happiness cannot exist, nor the blessings of a free government be enjoyed. And he called Americans, stating to them, it was your duty to repent and reform our ways. Of all the people who seem, would have had, you would think, had a grasp on the Constitution and the amendments of the Constitution, you think the closer you get to that time, probably those guys. So saints, where does that put us today with regard to church and state? Our president's going to lead us somewhere. If he follows pagan idols or secular pleasures, let us respect the king as we are called to do in scripture, but worship in obedience to God. If our president bows the knee to almighty God and calls upon the people to do likewise, we can rejoice. But the first miracle we see here in Jonah chapter 3 is a radical repentance. And the second miracle we see is a radical grace in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God saw they had turned from their evil way, and he relented. King James, if you're reading in the King James, it says God repented. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But he did not destroy Nineveh. God is involved in the affairs of men, just like Ben Franklin said. He's, in the, he's involved in the affairs of nations, countries, counties, cities, cul-de-sacs, all the way into the quiet of your bedroom. We know that God hears and acts and holds various entities accountable. So the Pharisee is going to rise up and go, well, if God, God said he was going to do this, there was no loophole, and he changed his mind. So the Bible contradicts itself. You go, well, how does the Bible contradict itself? Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Did God change his mind? Sort of. Did he change what he did? What he said he was going to do? Yes, he did. But God in his word states plainly that he does not change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. He tells the souls, I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The character of God does not change. 
The nature of God does not change. God doesn't have mood swings. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get frustrated as a human being does. He is constant, steadfast, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God was as fickle as we are, we would never know his mind. But God does change the direction he is going here. In the repentance of a people, what he said would come to pass, his justice is replaced by his grace. God was not required to destroy Nineveh. That was his choosing. He was not mandated to do that. He is sovereign. He does all in accordance with his glory. The sin is committed against him alone. So he alone has the authority to do or not to do as he sees fit. And so God extends grace to a people in place of his justice. He did the same thing at Mount Sinai when Moses interceded for Israel when they built the golden calf. God's going, I'm going to destroy them all and I'm going to make a people through you. And Moses pleaded with God and God relented of what he said he was going to do. In the Garden of Eden, God tells Adam he will surely die. And God extends his mercy to extend the time of Adam's life. And at some point he will die. So the Pharisee today is going to say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. You just need to dig a little deeper and understand the character and the nature of God. Well, was God surprised by this? Some will say, well, you know, it's like, oh, they repented. Oh, I really can't destroy them now. Uh, you know, they're sorry. But God is under no pressure from outside. He could have destroyed Nineveh still, even in their repentance, and been absolutely just and absolutely glorified in that. We have an example in scripture of somebody who repented and still received the fullness of what was coming to them. And that was the thief on the cross. When he repented, you know, oh, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus didn't say, oh, fantastic. Loose the nails, drop them down and have doctors there to minister to him. He still died on the cross. It is God's sovereign calling for the condemnation of Nineveh through the prophet Jonah that slaps them out of their sinful complacency. Such a startling proclamation that in 40 days you are doomed brings them to the point of recognizing their sin. This was God's sovereign plan from the beginning for Nineveh. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent them the prophet in the first place. Back in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, we read that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He states that also in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, states that twice. God is not like some sinister 
vile human being that likes to pluck the wings off of flies and let them squirm on the ground. That is not God's heart. And so he calls out, turn and live. God's grace is lavish. His mercy is more. It isn't mechanical. Well, they do this and therefore I do this. We see that God repented. The word in Hebrew is not, oh, I'm, I'm really, really sorry for what I did. It's a, The word for repented in the King James or relented in the ESV is like a deep sigh, a soulful sigh. God is moved with compassion. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that God repented that he made man because of the wickedness all over the earth. And it's a, it's a, it's a deep, compassionate sigh for their sin. And here, it is a deep, compassionate sigh for their repentance. God is moved in pleasure. Saint, they believed God. God sends a prophet to a pagan city with a message, and they believed God, and God relented of the disaster. It would be really interesting to know what happened to Nineveh in the days and weeks to follow. That, we don't have that, just like with the sailors. What happened to the sailors afterwards? Hopefully we'll hear in heaven. But the great miracle of Nineveh is a great miracle for you and for me here today. You and I, we are undeserving wretches. We loved our sin more than our Savior, and yet God called us to be his children, to receive his favor, to become sons and daughters of the king, to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And so where do we stand today? Do we live lives that are neither hot nor cold? And so Christ wants to spew us out of his mouth? Does part of me like this churchy thing, this idea of heaven? Okay, that's nice. But man, I really like the things of this world and I really like my sin. Maybe I like good things, but they are completely blinding me from my Lord and Savior. Saint, Jesus called us, told us plainly that we cannot serve two masters. Nineveh's king and Nineveh's people get it. And so if we are going to sing of the great glories of his mercy, let us turn to him. Let us turn away from our sin. Let us untangle ourselves. Let us put off those things of this world and love our Savior, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Father God, what a glory. What a thing you did in Nineveh. Oh God, that we would see that in our country today, that we would see our sin and turn to you, that we would forsake our ways and turn to you. God, this is a thing only you can do. If you would choose to use the voices of the saints here today, use us as you see fit. Here we are, God. Send us, 
I pray that we would be a people prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us, that we would do it with gentleness and meekness, that we would be uncompromising in the truth. God, help us to that end. But let us be willing to suffer as Christ suffered, knowing that if they hated him, they will hate us also. Father, if there be any here who do not know you as Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. Oh, that eyes would be open and hearts changed, that they would know you as King and King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.